You guys may be seated. For those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade, and your children are more than welcome to go now or to stay in here with us. Uh, we, like I said, love having children um, in the service with us. We've been, um, <clears throat> from for some time now, working through our confession of, of faith, the 1689 London Confession of Faith, and we started last week, chapter 8, which uh, speaks of Christ as mediator. And just by way of reminder, if you were to and um, look at the, the footnotes, if you have a, a copy of the confession, uh, you would see not just... Um, not proof text, if you will, but uh, passages of Scripture that um, demonstrate that all of God's Word is being taken into consideration in the formation of our confession. And so this morning we're in paragraph 2 of chapter 8, which says, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did when the fullness of time was come, take unto him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Very clear, crisp statement. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are still in chapter 4, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 30 to 34. Verses 30 to 34, and what is known, perhaps famously, is the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the mustard seed. And, and if you've uh, been with us over these last few weeks, you know, we've been looking at several different uh, parables that Jesus is teaching. And last week I, I noted that while the phrase kingdom of God has been used uh, prior to last week's text and the gospel of Mark, we saw last week the first time in this particular gospel where the phrase, the kingdom of God is like. And uh, we noted that in this, in this parable, we see that as well. And so allow me to read these four verses here, and then I'll pray, and then we will begin to work through some things. So starting with verse 30, John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he recounts this parable of Christ. Then he said, speaking of Christ, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God, right? So the kingdom of God is like, right? Some of your translations say that. Or with what parable shall we picture it? He answers. It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up 
and it becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade, right? So we see that theme again of seed and soil that's been used throughout Mark chapter 4 that we got kicked off with the parable of the soils, the parent or the master parable, and so now we come to this. And in verse 33 and 34, we see again an explanation as to the purpose of parables. It says, And with many such parables, he, Jesus, spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. Speaking to the multitude is what's in view. It says, And when they were alone, Jesus and his disciples, he explained all things to his disciples. And again, this reveals to us the the nature, uh, the, the conceal and reveal nature of the parables, if you remember back a few weeks ago. And so with that being the very word of God, why don't we go to the Lord now in prayer. God, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We're going to spend a lot of time this morning speaking, not just on how you inspired them, but how you preserve them and that we can, in fact, trust them, God, because we can trust you. So help us. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing, if you're taking notes, and kids, if you're you know, following along with us, you can write this down in your fill-in, in your worship guide. But Christians, the first thing we need to see, note, pay attention to, that Christians should have every confidence in the inspiration and preservation of Scripture. Christians should have every confidence in the inspiration and the preservation of Scripture, which seems a strange point to make uh, in a sermon on the parable of the mustard seed. But there has been controversy around this particular parable. Okay, This parable has been used to argue that the Scriptures are not inspired of God, which means that they're not infallible, okay? And if the scriptures are not inspired of God, then we have not the words of God, but we have the words of man alone. And and I want us to spend what's going to be this morning a a considerable time addressing this controversy, one that you might not have known exists. You know, maybe you've been in church life for some time and you don't realize there's any controversy surrounding this particular parable, but I want to spend time on it because I want you as God's people to have confidence. I want you to have confidence in the inspiration of scripture. I want you to have confidence in God's preservation of scripture. Uh, On this subject, the London Confession, our confession of faith, it says this in chapter one, uh, paragraph eight, the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, In the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being, and here it is, immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So what? So, as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them, right? That the scriptures are our ultimate authority as God's church, which is why we should have confidence, we need to have confidence 
in both their inspiration and their preservation. If we don't have confidence in that, then we don't have an authoritative text which speaks to matters of salvation, right? Now, there are various passages that the, the drafters of the, the 1689 used to support this statement that, again, take into consideration all that, that, that God's Word has to say on the subject, and I encourage you to read them and to study them, but I want us to resolve what at first glance seems to be an issue in our text this morning in order to, again, just bolster our confidence in the Word of God, okay? So, so first, the problem, the problem, okay? We, we have in our text the mustard seed parable, and it is universally understood that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the whole world, right? It is not the smallest seed in the whole world. And, and there are some skeptics of Christianity, and I don't have in mind when I'm saying skeptics here, I don't have in mind those with genuine questions that, that are coming from a place of, of humility, of searching, Okay, that, that's not what I have in view. What I have in mind are those who, who desire to remain in unbelief because of unrighteousness, but, but seek to hide by deflecting. And, and often the loudest skeptics of Christianity right, are, are, are these types, those that think that they can interrogate God and that he must answer them before they decide to repent of their sin and come to faith in Jesus, right? They think... I'll come, but it's on, my, it's on my terms, right? It makes me think of what the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 24. He says this, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. And get this, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block into the Greeks' foolishness, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the heart posture behind those questioning, it, it matters, right? And we've already explored in the parable of the soils the various conditions of the heart. Right? But there are those that know this parable and they point to Jesus saying that the mustard seed is smaller than all the seeds on earth and assert that this pits science against the Bible, right? Perhaps there's even this mocking of Christians for believing the Bible and they conclude because the mustard seed's not the smallest seed, Jesus is wrong, science is right, the scriptures aren't infallible, Jesus can't be God, otherwise such a mistake would not have been made by God. Right? Now here's the thing. Christians should have an answer for this. We should have an answer for this. We shouldn't be afraid of thinking through this, right? We can and we must with a warm, worshipful devotion to our triune God seek to understand what Jesus is and is not teaching in this parable. So our work this morning, right, like, 
like every Lord's Day is to seek the is so far as it depends on us, but by the Spirit of God living in us, we're seeking the divine intent of Scripture, since it is in fact inspired of the Holy Spirit and preserved by the Holy Spirit. And I want to begin by addressing what the Holy Spirit of God isn't intending as we read the passage, which means we have to address the mustard seed not being the smallest seed in the world, despite Jesus saying that it's the smallest seed in the world in this parable. Okay, and we do this first by remembering the nature of a parable, right? We should remember the nature of the parable. The Bible is a collection of 66 books, inspired books that were written by 40 human authors over three continents over the course of 2,000-ish years, right? And a parable is to be interpreted as a parable. In fact, as we read scriptures, we should be mindful of the different types of literature in this collection of books. We should pay attention to figures of speech. We should pay attention to hyperbole, right? Is there room, is there room for hyperbole in the scriptures? Is there room for it? Of course there is. For instance, take Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 to 9. He says this, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hellfire. Words of Jesus as well, right? On the one hand, I could say that Jesus is commanding us to cut off our feet and hands or to pluck out our eyes if they cause us to sin. And, and I could wonder why it is that we all look so well assembled this morning. Right? Don't we, don't we have sin? Right, what, why are we obeying the teachings of Jesus here? Don't we believe the Bible as Christians? Or I could spend more time with this passage and we could note that Jesus is speaking about the serious nature of sin and He's teaching us that the cost of repentance is always worth it, that Christ is worth it, that we should take our repentance of sin seriously, shouldn't we? Here's another example. Go back to the parable that we spent time on last week in which Jesus said that all a farmer can do is sow seed. He can't control the soil that he lays the seed in, right? We could object and we could say, well... Actually, we can control the soil since, well, the Industrial Revolution, right? We, we, can, we can transport the good soil. If Jesus is God and he's all-knowing, he should have factored that in when he taught this parable, shouldn't he? But is that really the divine intent of the parable? But Jesus made an error, somebody objects, right? He said the mustard seed was the smallest seed in the whole world, it's never been the smallest seed in the whole world, right? And, and here is where I want us to use other passages of Scripture to help make this even more clear for us this morning. First, let's, let's take that phrase. Look at your text with me. Let's take it, that phrase in Mark, right, which is in verse 31, smaller than all 
the seeds on earth, right, is, is how John Mark puts it, right? It's a phrase that's not used in Matthew's version. It's not used in Luke's version. Actually, Luke doesn't even document that Jesus called the mustard seed the smallest seed. But in verse 31 in our text, Mark 4, it's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. Now, is this idea of the whole world or earth, is it used in other places in scripture in such a way that it doesn't mean the whole planet? Right? The, the shorthand answer to this is, is yes. And, and we could go to several places, but I'm just going to take you to a, a few places quickly. Okay, first, we see Luke describing a famine that happened in the Roman Empire. And it's described in this way in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 28. Luke documents this. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Okay, we also see that same Greek word in that Acts passage, right? It was translated as world in another one of Luke's books, Luke chapter 4, right? The Gospel of Luke, verse 5, in the temptation of Christ and the devil taking him, taking Christ up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All right, these two New Testament uses of the word world mean the inhabited land, right? the inhabited land, not the whole earth, not the whole planet. It, it would be wrong to interpret them that way. And I'm showing you this because hyperbole is being used and is a frequent literary tool that we see in Scripture. Right? We also see this language in the Old Testament. C consider how the Lord prophesies through Zephaniah on how he'll judge Judah. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I'll cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Again, this is, this is judgment language the Lord is using as it relates to Judah here in the Old Testament, not the whole planet, but hyperbole is being used. We see cosmic judgment language being used to press in on the severity of sin and the path that one goes on if they don't repent. By the way, we see a lot of this sort of language in the book of Revelation as well. So we have biblical precedents that earth or world doesn't always mean the whole planet, and, and we need to be mindful of that. We have biblical evidence of hyperbole. And, and when considered in context, we understand how effective hyperbole can be to communicate a particular message, right? So with that in mind, we need to see we're not forcing anything on the text to conclude that Jesus in this parable of the mustard seed was using hyperbole and talking about the smallest, most well-known seed in the inhabited land to his agrarian 
audience, or again, keeping in theme here, who would have immediately associated the mustard seed as this small, seemingly insignificant seed. In order to grasp this parable of Christ, one didn't have to overly interpret whether the mustard seed was actually the smallest seed in the whole world in the same way that one doesn't need to overly interpret whether or not a mustard seed produces the biggest seed. They would have known. They would have known, right? Our text says greater than all the herbs. Was Jesus saying it goes from the smallest seed on the face of the planet to the largest tree on the face of the planet? No, no. Christ's goal in this is to show contrast. It's to show contrast in this illustration. When a mustard seed matures, it can be a tree of up to 20 or 30 feet tall with a, a 20 foot wing spread, uh, uh, 20 foot spread uh, with the branches. Right? The disciples, though, they, they wouldn't have thought that Jesus was saying absolutely that the tree is the biggest of every single tree on the planet. But what they would have grasped is that it is large in contrast to the small, humble beginnings of a mustard seed. Again, that's an objective of this parable, to to contrast the small beginnings of God's kingdom with what it will grow to be in the end. One last point before I I move us on here. We're almost finished with the preliminary work on, on this parable. But think of the mustard seed analogy used in relation to faith in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, and then in Luke chapter 17, verse 6. And this is, by the way, the only other way that the mustard seed illustration is used in Scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 17, the first part of verse 20, For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Have you guys ever moved a mountain? I'm just checking. All right. Is Jesus telling us here that literal mountains will be moved? Of course he's not. Of course he's not. He's using hyperbole. Why is he using hyperbole here? What is he, what is he illustrating? He's illustrating the potency, potency not, not, not of a mustard seed, but of Holy Spirit-generated faith. Right? Your conversion is is a miracle. My conversion is a miracle that God by his spirit would take a stony heart and give us a a heart of flesh that beats for the things of God is an absolute miracle. And that's where we need to turn for our second point here as it relates to the mustard seed parable. What I want to do for the remainder of our time together is highlight three things this parable of the mustard seed illustrates. And the first thing it illustrates is the power of God. Jesus, for us, is teaching us something about the power of God. And again, hasn't, hasn't that been a theme that we've seen in these, in these parables? But this small, indiscernible seed is contrasted with a large seed tree that it becomes. That's what the kingdom of God is likened to. As we saw last week, Jesus could have likened the kingdom of God to something less plain, right? He could have likened it to something much more grand and majestic, but it's like a seed. Yet, 
it becomes something much larger. It becomes something much more noticeable. And the plainness of this parable, the earthiness, if you will, of this parable, it helps to remind us that God's not going to share his glory with another. He's not going to share his glory with another. God grows his kingdom. Right now, I read that passage in 1 Corinthians to you just a moment ago about how the gospel of God is foolishness from the perspective of man. God does not grow his kingdom according to the wisdom of man. He doesn't. Right? He doesn't do it the way that man would do it. Right? God grows his kingdom in such a way that he alone receives the glory. He alone receives the glory. He takes the ordinary. He takes what seems boring to us. He takes what seems inconsequential. He takes what seems mundane, and he grows. He expands his kingdom. And this should encourage us this morning because much of our lives, right, if we're honest, feel perhaps mundane and boring, ordinary. The mustard seed parable demonstrates gospel logic. It demonstrates gospel logic. Jesus who is truly God, very God, as our confession says, he humbled himself by becoming a man. And he didn't just become a man like that, right? He was born of a woman. He was born of a virgin. The God of the cosmos, creator of heaven and earth, became a baby. He became one of us so that through him we might be saved. Is there anything more antithetical to worldly wisdom than that? Is there anything more contrary to the wisdom of man than this long-awaited Messiah conquering death, hell, and the grave through his death on the cross, his descent, and his bodily and eternal resurrection? Is anything more contrary to the pride of man than the reality that there's nothing that we can do on our own to make things right between us and God and that grace really is free? Anything more contrary to the way we would do things in our own thinking than that, right? The mustard seed parable, it illustrates the power of God. He grows his kingdom in ways that we can't even discern. But as his plan for the nations unfolds, and when we stand before him on that great glorious day that we're headed toward, we'll see how this indiscernible mustard seed grew into the greatest of all of the herbs. Right? Such is... The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like. And this leads us to the second point. The mustard seed parable, it illustrates that the kingdom of God is more comprehensive than we think. It's more comprehensive than we think. We we see in the Old Testament prophets this image of birds nesting in branches that, that illustrate that God's kingdom includes not just the Jewish people, but Gentiles as well, which means that you know, the inclusion of the Gentiles is good news for us, right? It's good news for you and I. But consider just one passage from Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, and its similarity with the mustard seed parable. You don't have to turn there. I think it is up on the screen. And there's other places that we could go in the Old Testament to further color this in, but just read this one Ezekiel 17, verse 23, says, On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches, they will dwell. There's a lot of overlap there with the, you know, the 
the illustration of the mustard seed parable. The Lord says through Ezekiel that he'll plant and bring forth bows and bear fruit. And in this imagery, we see this majestic cedar, right? And we see that under it are birds of what our text says, every sort, right? The, the Lord's saying through Ezekiel, right? Israel will be large, will be large. And because we have the completed canon of scripture, we know that Israel is larger than just the nation of Israel, that we have been grafted in by the grace of God. And it includes people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, right? All types of people when they come on the basis of repentance and of their particular sins and faith in Christ alone, all types of people included in the family of God on this basis. One theologian says this, God's reign will not only be more real than the world can imagine, but it will also be larger and more encompassing. It will also be larger and more encompassing. And, and I want us to note that God's kingdom isn't just encompassing from an every tribe, tongue, and nation standpoint. It's also encompassing of all sorts of sinners that God in Christ has made saints. And if that weren't the case... None of us would have a chance, would we? And for us as Christians, it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine a heaven full of the worst of sinners. Right? If so, we need to repent of our self-righteousness, don't we? Right? Heaven will be full of the worst of sinners, like the Apostle Paul. And it will be full of these types of people because they were welcomed in through the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone on the basis of repentance and faith. Right? We have in our Bible people who were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and coveters and drunkards and revilers and extortioners, right? We see that very list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. And we'll see these types of people in heaven all because our, our triune God has made repentance Possible. He's made faith possible through the shed blood and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And he's declared, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Right? So this parable, it reminds us that, that God's kingdom is more comprehensive than we think. It's more comprehensive than we think. The final thing we should note this morning is this. The mustard seed parable illustrates God's providential care of his people. The mustard seed parable illustrates God's providential care of his people. Look at verse 32. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. I'm not sure that last phrase has ever struck me the way that it did this week so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Believer, God, he cares for you. He cares for you. He really cares for you. And we have evidence, ultimate evidence of this in Jesus Christ, right? God, again, being hospitable, God welcoming us into his kingdom. This kingdom... The author of Hebrews, by the way, says, can't be shaken. It's an unshakable foundation. 
But God's welcomed us in his kingdom through Christ, right? That's the ultimate evidence. That, that it is where we stand on the grace of God. That's where we are preserved, the grace of God. And at the same time, all these other graces are showered over us every single second. Every second that you draw breath, that I draw breath. James 1, chapter 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow turning. But our, our Father of lights has given us good gifts, right? gifts that flow from his unchangeable character, that his character which we're reminded through Scripture there's no variation or shadow or turning. Right? These daily graces that further teach us about the faithfulness of our triune God. Think for a moment of your, of your story. Think of how it would have played out apart from the grace of God in your life. Right? Think of those sins in your life that could have led you down this extremely dark path or darker path, should I say, say, if it weren't for the grace of God restraining you and drawing you to himself. Think for a moment of how God is richly provided for your needs. You think of how the scriptures remind us that his mercies are new every morning. And think about where you are right now for a moment. What are those things that are troubling you? What are your worries? What are your anxieties? And, and as the Lord brings these things to your mind, consider the words of Christ. Not just in this parable, but elsewhere. Matthew chapter 6, for instance, where we see some similarities in some of the language here. Verses 26 to 30. Look at the birds of the air, Christ says. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. What about Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 to 31? Are not two sparrows, birds again here, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Like this parable, it teaches us what the whole Bible teaches us, which is that God providentially guides our lives, that he cares for us, and that his care, his guiding, his saving of us is grounded in his own good, unchanging character. That's why you can why you can trust it. That's why you can trust him. We see in Malachi the Lord
Lord prophesying through him. And he, and he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Okay? So what does that mean for me? And the prophecy goes on, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? The, the unchangeable nature of our triune God is the basis of which we can trust him and trust his care for us and trust that his plan for the nations, all types of people, not just from a cultural standpoint, but all types of various sins and struggles this side of eternity, that he, according to his own good character, saved a people to himself. He's reconciled a people to himself, and he providentially guides our lives. So the Lord is near you, and in Christ, the Lord is for you. So we're taught through this parable that how God's kingdom grows is a testament to God's power. We're taught that the kingdom of God is more comprehensive than we think. And we're taught that God cares for those in his kingdom. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, thank you for time in your word. Thank you for this mustard seed parable, God, and what you teach us through it nature of your kingdom and about the care that you have for your people. And Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name.